We can seek from a sincere place to understand. Understand why we do what we do, and perhaps why that other person does what that other person does. And as we focus on understanding, as we ask those questions, who, why, what, where, how, when, and we get answers to those questions, we can begin to accept. And with that acceptance comes forgiveness. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Professor Christopher Chapel about mindfulness. If you missed part one, just search for the Globe Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just go to podcast.glo.com. Dr. Chapel is a professor of Indic and Comparative Theology at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He's published over 20 books about Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, yoga, and religion and ecology. As I mentioned in part one, he's a featured teacher on Glow.com. In this part of our conversation, Professor Chapel and I discuss how a mindfulness practice can help you form your own definition of freedom. Professor Chapel has deep knowledge of these early texts and plenty of stories to tell, so he's made his text accessible. I hope you enjoy part two of my conversation with Professor Chapel. I started out by asking him what else we can say about this word mindfulness that helps us understand just why it is so important. As we began to explore in episode one of our conversation, mindfulness seems to pervade Buddhist philosophy and practice. And as I was prepping for our conversation, I learned that mindfulness features in so many different lists within Buddhist texts. I'll briefly just name a few here so our listeners have a sense for how broad the scope is. So mindfulness is in the Four Noble Truths under the Eightfold Path as number seven, as right mindfulness. It's number one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's step five in the gradual training. It's number 10 in the formations aggregate under which mindfulness is referred to as having the characteristic of not wobbling. It's one of the 22 faculties listed next to the elements as the mindfulness faculty. It's part of number eight of the 10 imperfections of insight listed as assurance, uh, meaning the establishment uh, in assurance is mindfulness. And I'm sure there are a lot more, all, all, all conveying that this project of mindfulness is a cognitive, somatic, intuitive process of how we interact with ourselves, our environment, with each other, with each other, that it's never done. It's a lifelong process inviting us to live a mindful life. Can you speak to how mindfulness is about this larger project of living a mindful life across a wide spectrum of factors concerning the human condition? Mindfulness requires us to understand all of the mental factors. And in the years following the passing of the Buddha, 
the monks met regularly and had conversations, one can imagine, long into the night, where they not only remembered all of those beautiful lectures that he gave, but they systematized the content. And they've reflected and listed out in literature known as the Abhidharma, different lists that delineate all aspects of the human experience, the parts of the body, the five elements of the world. Most importantly, the mental and emotional dispositions. And in the Sarastivada Abhidharma, 46 chitta dharmas, or 46 components of the mind, are charted that give voice to the complexity of what it means to be human. And to one side, and this would be the dukkha side, the, side, the darkness side, there are impurities, unfavorable elements, and downright vicious elements. And we've all known these within ourselves, and we readily identify them in other people, such as anger, deceit, jealousy, downright violence. Okay. And we need those because they cause us to wake up. Then in the middle, there are general and miscellaneous mind states. And these include even things like mindfulness itself, memory, okay, includes love. You can love something that's really good, or you can love something that's going to need trouble. And in this middle list, we also find doubt. Because you can doubt something and it should be doubted, or you could doubt something that in fact could be very healthful. And on to the other, the sukha side, and moving toward the nirvana side, there are these mind states that provide a pathway toward freedom. And they include shraddha, which is, I'm going to use the word confidence rather than faith. That somehow in your heart, you know that this better path will bring you closer to freedom, virya, tenacity and strength, upeksha, equanimity that wonderful meditative state, also known as samatha, where you're not ruffled by the ups and the downs. Hri, a sense of self-respect. 
Okay. Uh, so many of the loving kindness meditations have sort of morphed into uh, loving kindness toward oneself. And we must understand that this is not really about an ego self that's, uh, oh, I look good, or I'm really a good person with pride. But no, this sort of sense of a full heart. And to move away from hatred, to move away from cupidity. Okay, I think we've all had those teenage crushes. Some people never get over those teenage crushes. They just keep coming. And that's something that you don't need to do. Okay, Nonviolence, to just abide in nonviolence. And to have a dexterity, an ability to move quickly, to adjust, to shift, and to constantly move toward the better, the good, and then hopefully by the time of death, it'll be the best because you will be ready uh, to embrace that final moment. So this is a lifetime project, a very detailed project uh, with 46 named moments, understandable and recognizable to each and every one of us. And when I have sat with, I'm thinking particularly of Bhante Gunaratne, who came to Stony Brook, New York many years ago. He is still teaching in Washington, D.C., wrote that wonderful book on uh, the four stages of mindfulness. And I was a young uh, researcher, just freshly minted with a PhD. I must have been about 26 years old when I invited him to give a talk about Buddhism to a group of students. And my students were rude to him. Okay, They were not asking friendly questions. They were being very teenager-y, and I felt so bad. And I said to Bonte, I said, Venerable, I'm so sorry. I apologize for the way that my students treated you. Mm. And he never lost his equanimity. And he told me something that I continue to observe both in others and in myself. And he said, there are three types of questions. The last type is very rare. The first type of question you must anticipate. And that type of question was asked by a few of your students, but it's a type of question that challenges the authority of the person speaking. The second type of question, and we had a couple of those, is not a question at all, but it's simply that person letting the speaker know what they know with a bravado implying that they know more than you do. <laughs> and yeah, that will happen. And the third type of question, the most rare question of all, comes from a place of sincere yearning to know. And all these years later, I've come to love a word 
that's used in Buddhist literature, Jain literature, Vedanta literature, yoga literature, used in the Bhagavad Gita, in fact, jijnasa, which means wanting to know. And it's the prerequisite for entry into the spiritual path. So what we want to do is to find out and the greatest laboratory for meaning is, in fact, our own lives. And by asking, why do I do what I do? We can move into what Granianjali articulated as follows. We can seek from a sincere place to understand. Understand why we do what we do and perhaps why that other person does what that other person does. And as we focus on understanding, as we ask those questions, who, why, what, where, how, when, and we get answers to those questions, we can begin to accept. And with that acceptance comes forgiveness. And with that forgiveness of ourselves and other people can come peace. And in that peace, we find, if only for a moment, if only in regard to that one circumstance, but we can find a place of freedom. And a mindful life enters into that engagement on a daily basis, prepares by stabilizing the mind in meditation using whatever technique, whether breath, mantra, or just simply gazing at the sky, finds that place of stability and a little bit of of acceptance of, of grace of what is, and then be prepared for the resilience needed as the next challenge of life comes forward. That's beautiful. In the spirit of channeling uh, the third type of questions, <laughs> and also wanting to know and, and getting to know ourselves and how our minds work. There, there are a variety of concepts that seem to be core to these teachings. And I know we can't get to all of them, but I'm wondering in the time that we have left, concepts, practices such as bare attention, clear comprehension, the concept or the experience of, of not self or no soul or impersonality. Do you feel that it would be of value to unpack any of those further? You've touched on all three of them somewhat, but I'm wondering because they do seem to be quite core to, to this process. I'm curious too, can the acceptance and the practice of not self actually sort of, I don't know, paradoxically or ironically put us in more control? In quotes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell a tender story. I think it's the right time for this story that brings 
into relief, these three key notions of Barrett attention, clear comprehension, and abandonment of self. And it's a story that is peculiar. And the great literary scholars, when they're trying to sort hagiography from something that probably really happened, whether a Bible scholar or a Buddhist scholar, uh, this is a story from the life of the Buddha that is very instructive and probably a real story. There was a young man, could have been a teenager perhaps, who had entered that state of jijnyasa and had decided, a little bit like the Buddha had decided when he was 29 years old, to go in quest of a teacher that could help him stabilize his mind, that could help him find meaning. And it reminded me a little bit of one time, and here I'm dating myself, but long distance hitchhiking was fairly standard in the late 60s and 1970s. And I was once hiking, hitchhiking from my hometown of Avon, New York, near Rochester, down to Pittsburgh to visit a friend. And it was getting late, it was getting dark. I was literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, someone did pick me up and bring me to Pittsburgh, but I was about to just, you know, go over the hedgerow and, you know, just wait out the night. And this young man was a little bit more, um, I guess, friendly than I would have been because I wasn't about to knock on someone's door. I was just going to lie down in the field. But this young man went to a farmhouse and knocked on the door and said, the day is late. Do you have some place where I could rest tonight? And the farmer says, yeah, I have a shed out back. And there's someone else who came by, and I let that person stay in there. Why don't you just, you know, knock on the door? He'll probably be fine with letting you in. And think of sort of the generosity of the farmer and the expectation of generosity, which is one of the hallmarks of India. So much hospitality is so freely given when one travels within India. So much trust. So the young man knocks on the door and there's someone there probably in his 30s that says, oh, sure, come on in. And they start talking. And the younger gentleman says, you know, I, I, I really like the idea of meditating. I think, and I can see my college students sort of saying, I want to learn how to meditate. And <laughs> a smile comes on the face of the stranger. And he says, oh, I know some meditation techniques. Let's just sit together. And they end up staying until dawn in succession, bringing 
their bare attention, bringing their clear comprehension first to a section of the dirt floor. And they threaded their thoughts, so they said the word earth again and again. They found themselves probably talking a little bit about how, yeah, look at how that earth has taken the shape of the adobe that forms this hut. And look how the earth has grown those reeds that have been thatched into the roof that protects us from any rain. Look at the earth that gives forth the food that sustains us. And then they proceeded to bring their bare attention, to bring their clear comprehension to that lovely purified water that had been left by their host. And they reflected upon the water. And they told stories to each other. Siddhartha, as he was called in his earlier life, had grown up in Nepal, which is just riven with rivers, so many rivers flowing through Nepal, and recollections were brought forth of, oh, the Ganges, oh, the pond over there, oh, the irrigation that allows the rice to grow, oh, the monsoon that we welcome every June, okay, reveling in the water and all of its qualities. And then they turned their attention to the deepa, to the oil lamp that had been provided and they were looking at how this light casts shadows, how this light reveals form and color, how this light brings warmth, how this light in the form of the sun illuminates the planet every day, how this light in the form of the sun as it sets in the western sky brings a moment of amazement. And then they breathed. They may have had some incense. They may have watched the wind wafting through the room. And they breathed in. And they breathed out. And who knows? They might have counted in one and out two and three, out four, up to ten, and start all over again. But they recalled the literature that they had known from the Upanishads and other literature that really extols the power of the wind within the body as the life-giving prana that sustains us. And they eventually, shortly before dawn, moved into just a spacious awareness and they saw the glimmer of light beginning to illuminate the inside. And in a moment of profound gratitude, and in a moment of jaw-dropping recognition, this young person suddenly came to understand that he was in the presence of the Buddha. 
of the awakened one and said, I am ready to become your disciple. And this was in the early years of the teaching of the Buddha, when he was still traveling once in a while on his own. And he said, well, very good. I will arrange an installation ceremony, but you're going to have to gather the implements needed. Find someone that will give you a robe. Find someone that will give you a begging bowl. And the Buddha, meanwhile, met up again with his other followers. This is before the nuns, so with his other monks. And told them to prepare to welcome into the Sangha, to welcome into the community a new monk. But a tragedy happened. And I'm reminded uh, when I was walking up the hill the other day, and thank goodness no one was killed, but before airbags, someone very easily could have been killed. But right in front of me, there was this Jeep that clipped a town car and everything stopped. There was this loud bang and the little town Mini Cooper was smashed and even the Jeep was disabled. Well, the old India equivalent was a bull came running through the town square and gored the young boy, the young man, and killed him. And when the news reached the Buddha through, you know, the only way that news traveled in that time was like, oh, that kid that was going to show up and become a monk, he got killed in the town square by an errant bull. And the monk said, oh, he must have had such bad karma. He must have really been in a place of horrible suffering. And the Buddha calmed them all down and said, brothers, I just spent many hours meditating with that young man. He has overcome the difficulties of samsara. He is one of the arhats, one who has achieved nirvana. And this is the beauty of the, 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 the hopefulness of the story of the life of the Buddha, is that during his lifetime, he taught thousands and thousands and thousands, and he deemed 500 people to have become free. And this young boy, this young man was one of those deemed as having gone into that place of total freedom. Now, I tell that story because how do we get freedom? We bring ourselves into that place of focus where we allow all of our memories to be brought into a place of attention and we use both savitarka, which is our thinking impulse about particulars, and our savichara, 
which is all of our emotionality and our associations to be brought into that place of pure recognition. And in that, we're able to recapture that sense of childhood freedom. And recall that when the Buddha was seven years old, when he was still in that place of just perfect attunement, that he was sitting and felt a twinge of sadness. And it's very interesting because in child development, we know that's when the self-reflexivity reflexivity sets in about the age of seven, when our permanent teeth start to come in. And I remember vividly my own sort of melancholy at the age of seven is that when I wander, I'm going to have, you know, it's not ever going to be the same. And I, I actually cried on my seventh birthday lamenting that my childhood was over. And sure enough, it all started to get really complicated after that. But what the Buddha did was counsel folks to don't judge. His community was quick to condemn this person for having bad karma, when in fact he had pure experience just prior to his death. And it underscores also the need for corrective community. And my advice is that unless you're in relationship with others, whether it be a significant other or a family that you trust or fellow meditators or practitioners, this aspect of Sangha provides the checks and balances that are needed. And this notion of community was so praised by the Buddha himself. And one time, one of his, his monks came and said, you know, I think that the community is really important. And he responded and said, that's all we have is community. All we have are the moments where we receive correction from our friends. And friendship allows us to overcome our ego. And this notion of no self, which sounds sort of clinically dour, in fact, is about losing ourselves in service of others. It's not a negation of human impulse. It's an elevation of human impulse to put someone else's need ahead of our own need. And this way of approaching no self can be quite tender, can be quite beautiful, and is actually a time of reckoning that everything that we cherish, including our good looks, they fade, they change, including our physical strength. I've seen so many people lose what they so once identified 
as core to their reality. Mental dexterity, and I've seen people in illness, nonetheless, as those pieces of the reality were being disassembled, nonetheless, keep their sweetness, keep their care, keep their concern. And that's a tribute to what the Buddha taught, that no matter what label you want to put onto your identity, like sticky post-it notes, they're all going to come off. And we need to accept that. We need to embrace that. And that will allow us to be happy. That ultimately will allow us to be free. Chris, I know the story that you shared, I love that story. I, I came across it in my reading. Does it have a name so people can find it? It's the Datu Vibhanga. What does that translate to? Um, the discourse about the elements. And the name, another way to find it is the story of Puku Sati, P-U-K-K-U-S-A-T-I. So the Puku Sati story, also known as the Datu Vibhanga. So a great place to find that story is in your book, Living Landscapes, Meditation on the Five Elements in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain Yogas. I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to share about your own practice at this point in your life. And I suspect anyone listening carefully to what you've shared already has a good sense for how you show up with yourself and, and with others. So maybe we've covered that. Uh, and I'm also curious about the unconscious and what role that plays uh, in these teachings, as well as maybe for yourself. Earlier, we mentioned briefly the Rig Veda. I'm at this point, reminded of the uh, Purusha Sukta 10.90, where it speaks to how three fourths of being of our being as as creatures, as humans, uh, is unseen or hidden from us, or is eternal. And in the past couple of years, I've discovered the benefit of writing down my dreams when I can remember them, which is um, maybe three or four times a week during the night. Uh, and in the morning, like sitting with them, like using them as entry points for exploration with uh, my therapist, like all of that has really helped create a greater intimacy with and acceptance of myself or my you know, various aspects of myself, a deeper humility and, and much more that I won't get into here. So I'm also curious about your thoughts on how the intersection of mindfulness and dreams may help us learn how our mind works and also reveal unconscious patterns. I want to talk a little bit about the experiences that rise up in states of meditation, whether it be a daily practice or an extended retreat practice. And it is very interesting how meditation is akin to the experiences of sleep itself. And we know that the human body, we know that mammal bodies, uh, and even snakes, okay, that they need that extended 
journey periodically and for humans from you know seven to eight hours a night where they go into the unmanifest where they release the movement they release the doing what we do when we are awake and we reconstitute ourselves every evening and I've noticed when I've been on long, say, a long week-long meditation and really doing practice hours and hours during the waking hours, I've had the experience of then not really sleeping and then finding this uh, reserve of energy that uh, blurs that distinction between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Now, our dreams are an important bridge between the conscious life and the unconscious life. Our dreams reveal to us patterns through images and archetypes in some cases, and through just repetitive activities that we can look at in a new way in other instances. And since I was a teenager, since I began that meditative path, and alongside that meditative path, I was reading psychology today, learning about Jung and Freud and transpersonal psychology, and knowing uh, in my studies, particularly of Native American cultures, of uh, the, peop the Seneca peoples who lived and flourished in the very Genesee Valley where I was doing my afternoon wanderings, I knew that signs come from nature and that signs come from dreams themselves. And part of my dirty or shraddha, uh, my confidence has been affirmed repeatedly through revisiting those dream journals and recollecting that so much of what I have dreamt so many years ago um, either manifests quickly or maybe sometimes years later. But that loop of, oh, is it a deja vu? Um, is it, what is this that's happening that affirms that what I'm doing now is what must be done? And that calling what I've, I've determined, and I, I have the gift of meeting with, you know, many, many dozens of people young people that I've never met before, so I'm able to do my, you know, seat of the pants studies. And one of my studies is how many of you, and they're teenagers, many of them still, have had a dream, and then you notice that, oh, that dream has happened. This is not paranormal behavior. This is just a normal. And it's- And very well documented at this point. So well documented. And uh, and so generally overlooked. And when they get a bit of affirmation from seeing that other people also have a life that is informed by their dream life, that there's sort of 
a collective sigh of relief that, yeah. Uh, and I've had so many students that have said, yeah, I knew I was going to be here through my dream life. And I have, you know, and myself personally, so many instances. So what does this reveal about the human psyche? From a Jungian perspective, it says to us that we have a depth awareness, that we live out archetype, and that we are unfathomable even to ourselves, and so much more so in regard to the mystery of other people. And that as we commit to relationship through whatever endeavors, that we can find meaning in the stories and the narratives of those we encounter, and that we can go with the gift, in my case, of increasingly long life, we can revisit those memories and honor people that have given us a piece of this world that we continue to engage. So I began to lose intimate friends at the age of 34 and 35. And in the loss of those people, I carry their gifts with me and I honor them by doing what they taught me to do. And it may be to have fun. It may be to continue writing. It may be to be kind. And I feel accompanied with those who have become ancestors. I feel accompanied as after their death, I have learned so much more about my own parents. I feel that we are never alone. And as I walk the streets of my neighborhood and I recall former colleagues and former school board members who worked with me on various projects, I just feel so grateful to those who have gone before and I cherish so many of my teachers who are no more, but whose words and whose writings and whose music live on. And this is the gift of memory. This is the gift of mindfulness. This is the gift of smriti, is to give honor to the senses, to give honor to the complexity of the human mind, and to honor those who have created a pathway for all of us as we do what we can to continue the good work, to continue the great work, to continue to work for the uplift of others. That would be a wonderful place to not only end, but to take with us as we go on into our day and into our future. Chris, 
thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your personal experience. And I, I personally have been uh, lucky and grateful to have known you and to work with you all well, of these years. Well, you were part of the that Hill Street thing. And you know, yes. you've heard it from me, but I had dreamt that building again and again and again. And when I finally realized, oh, then you know, I, I knew that that's what was to be. And in this massive, you know, Hughes Corporation building, I had dreamt this again and again. And I actually looked, because I'd never been in here. We were up on, you know, the upper campus. And I actually went on a job interview thinking, oh, I got to go somewhere, but it turned out being here. And then I was mentioning that school board. We had a whole, like our world was collapsing at the local village school, Loyola Village School uh, with our first grader. And it was not okay. And uh, sure enough, I had this dream. And then with like the next day, I showed up at this what's now Westside Neighborhood School, but threw ourselves headlong into this private independent school that then one thing led to another. But uh, but yeah, no, the dream world is primary. And I remember I dreamt my guru in vivid technicolor um, down to the names of the books on her shelf when, you know, two, three months before I met her. And then... Um, it dreamt the Santa Monica Mountains um, long before I landed here. So, yeah, um, we're we're blessed, and I'm sure you've had. I mean, I know that you've had similar dreams that affirmed what you're doing. Absolutely, I'm almost cons well. I would say three to four nights a week. I'm I'm genuinely um, in awe and wonder of of what what's what's coming up and uh for those listening who uh, may think they're not dreaming uh, i believe it's pretty well accepted empirically that uh if not all the majority of humans dream five to six times a night i might have that number wrong but we're all it seems like we're all dreaming and, it, and there are a variety of theories as to why some of which are, are quite interesting um, but i also want to before we end i want to call attention to your master's program at LMU. And uh, if anyone's interested in learning more about that or anything else that uh, you're offering uh, to the world, where would they go to find you and other information? Yeah. Um, Loyola Marymount University implemented a Master of Arts in Yoga Studies in 2013 building on certificates that we continue to offer in yoga philosophy and various practices of meditation. And we are easy to find uh, by putting in yoga studies, Loyola Marymount University. And the website is quite comprehensive and inviting. And we also have, within a different unit of the university, a series of programs that are completely open to the public, including a 200-hour teacher training experience, a 100-hour program in yoga mindfulness and social change, yoga for educators, and yoga therapy. So these programs are... 
um, streaming. So they're open to people from around the globe. They're both synchronous and asynchronous. And this is true of the, of the graduate degree as well, that people can show up here in Los Angeles and be on campus, and they could remain in Missouri or Ohio and live stream in the lectures, participate in that way, view them archivally, and work toward a Master of Arts in Yoga Studies that prepares people for college teaching, prepares people to build a better studio, prepares people for uh, work as, uh, as a consultant, as well as a yoga therapist, as well as a meditation coach. And the studies include travel within India, and include getting to know a remarkable community of people who I'm seeing now that we're welcoming our 10th class. I know that people from that very first cohort are in touch and communicating, living various places and continuing with this good work. But thank you for asking. Yes, and we'll put links in the show notes to those. I know people who've gone through the various programs you refer to, and I know how much they've benefited from them, how they've referred to those experiences as being so rich, rewarding, rigorous, and um, lifting them to levels of uh, uh, of their own knowledge and, and virtuosity in these subjects that uh, uh, either hadn't dreamed of or were exactly what they were looking for by seeking out your program. So you're offering a, a wonderful service to the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008. And because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.